chapter 31. That's where we're going to be camping out today. Job chapter 31. I want to acknowledge before I start just the children that are up here. Welcome, children. Um, it's a pleasure to have you here. It might not be the same mutually, but that's okay. We're learning. This is a, this is a process. Discipleship is something that takes time. So even if it's not that way right now, Lord willing, maybe it will be someday. Uh, Job chapter 31. If you want to turn, turn to uh, verse 29, I'm going to read down to verse 37 just to get us the thrust of the passage for us, and then we'll jump into it together. Job chapter 31 starting in verse 29. If I have rejoiced at the ruin of him who hated me, or exalted when evil overlooked him, or overtook him, I have not let my mouth sin by asking for his life with a curse. If the men of my tent have not said, who is there that have not been filled with his meat? The sojourner has not lodged in the street. I have opened my doors to the traveler. If I have concealed my transgressions as others do by hiding my iniquity in my heart, because I stood in great fear of the multitude, and the contempt of families terrified me so that I kept silence and did not go out of, the, out of doors, oh, that I had one to hear me. Here is my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. Oh, that I had the indictment written by my adversary. Surely I would carry it on my shoulders. I would bind it on me as a crown. I would give him an account of all my steps. Like a prince, I would approach him. Let's pray. Father, it's in this moment that I'm just reminded that we as a church need your whole counsel. Lord, I know this has been several weeks that we've been in the book of Job and just the necessity of all of Scripture. We need every bit of it. So, Lord, help us to be attentive to what your Word says today. Lord, may we, may we not dismiss what you have said. And, Lord, give us, by your Spirit, the grace to understand it rightly. And then, Lord, the power to live according to it. Do that in us, we pray. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you remember uh, the last couple chapters in Job, <clears throat> they've, been, they've been moving from Job looking at the remembering his old days in, in chapter 28 or 29, and then in 30, he just talked about his, his misery that he lived in. But today, we're going to look at the last words of Job in the book of Job. This chapter, we turn to his final defense. And if you remember the, the image, there should be an image back there, Tony. Yeah, that's this one. You remember what we talked about last week, talking about how the Garden of Eden was what was in the beginning, and this is, though, where we find ourselves. We're, we're calling it Death Valley, and it's between the Garden of Eden, and it's between the New Jerusalem, and this is where we dwell. Now, what we're going to be talking about today, though, is the final appeal for Job as he's down in this valley, okay? So this is what we're talking about today. But I have a question as you think about that. If you ever had last words, what would they be? If for some reason maybe it was you yeah, fill in the blank for how, what your last words would be. What do you think your last words would be? What would you say? Let me give you just a couple of people's last words just as a teaser on our way in. Here's the first one. 
and I should, I should have like hid the person who, who said these. This one's from Karl Marx. This is what he said. Go on, get out. Last words are for fools who have not yet said enough. Now, I disagree with Marx. It's just, the point is, this, these were his last words. Go to the next one. This is what Ben Franklin said. A dying man can do nothing easy. What would your last words be? Let me give you one more. Winston Churchill. These are very like quintessential to the person actually even. I'm bored with it all. <laughs> That's what he said. I'm bored with it all. But what, if, what would your last words be? Think about if you were standing before the largest court in all the land and you had last words before them, what would you say? Or, or think about even worse, even bigger, even in a bigger way. If you had your last words or maybe your first words in the presence of God, what would they be? What would you appeal to for your life? Now we see Job, what we're going to see from Job is he's appealing. This is his final appeal before God. And he's essentially saying, if I've done nothing wrong, or if I've done something wrong, I deserve to be punished. But he's saying, I've done nothing wrong, so therefore I shouldn't be punished. Now the difficulty of this book is that we've seen time and time again that Job is a blameless man. And yet he's suffering as one who isn't blameless. And this hits us at a place, it fundamentally strikes us in a way that we don't like it. We think when you do good, you should get good out. Or if you do bad, you should get bad out. But what makes this book difficult is we see a righteous man suffering, and yet he's getting bad out. And yet God commends him. Now I want you to notice the last word. Start in verse, verse 1, actually, of 31. Turn, turn back over there with me. And it's kind of confusing what he starts to say, but I'll try to unpack it. He says, I have, I've made a covenant with my eyes. How then can I gaze at a virgin? What would be my portion from God above and my heritage from the Almighty on high? If you're taking notes, I want you to see first the covenant. The covenant. It's integrity of heart. The covenant. Integrity of heart. Job says at first, he says, I have made a covenant, which is simply a, se- a special, basically a pinky promise. <laughs> the Bible's version of a pinky promise. I double pinky promise. He says, I've made a double pinky promise with my eyes. How could I gaze at a, at a virgin? Now, it seems strange what he says, and it is kind of strange, but I want to remind you, Job, I would argue that Job took place between, somewhere between Adam and Abraham. There were no covenants at this time, okay? Now you're going to ask, well, how did God deal with his people? I don't know. <laughs> we, we can sit around and be like, well, maybe we don't, we, nobody knows. It's very unclear. But what, what's important to see here is that Job made a special promise, not just with his eyes, but before God to keep integrity. I would argue, the same thing that this commentator would argue, and we wonder, why does he say, how then could I gaze at a virgin? Let me... Let me tell you why I think he says this. He says, this is what one author would say, it is likely that he begins with this not because it is worse than the sins he will list later or because it is the supreme temptation in his life, but because in his heart-searching demands, it can symbolize and sum up a life of inner purity. As any man can attest, the calling to inward sexual faithfulness is a searching demand. And the reason I, would, I, I agree with him in that way, I think he's right, and that's why Job is saying, 
I've made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a, a virgin? It's like him saying, if I'm pure in this area, I'm going to be pure in all the rest of the areas. Or as James 3, 2 says, for we all stumble in many ways. And if anybody does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man. That's not perfect sinless. That's perfect complete. Also, able also to bridle his whole body. Now I want to, this, this seems strange on the front end. It should feel strange to you. This is Job's final appeal, (laughs) and he starts talking about his own purity. You're probably wondering, why? Why would he be talking about his own purity? But I want you to imagine for a second, sitting in that courtroom, like I said, where you're giving your last words, and say, maybe there was a robbery that took place that you were being accused of. The The people there should have supported you But as we've seen in the book of Job, the people who should have supported Job came along him and said, you're guilty. Just repent. Get on with it. For 30-something chapters, all he's heard is, you're guilty. Repent. 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 And he says, guys, I didn't do anything to deserve this. He's experiencing false accusations from those closest to him. And if you've ever experienced false accusations in that way, it is a very, very unsettling reality. But notice what he goes on to say, and he says this is his plea. His final plea for God is to give a reason for all the evil that's come upon him. Look at what he says in verse 2. He goes on and he says, what would be my portion from God above and my heritage from the Almighty on high? Is not calamity for the unrighteous and disaster for the workers of iniquity? And Job's basically simply acknowledging those who are unrighteous, they deserve punishment. And those who practice evil, it's deserving to them to reap destruction. And in some ways, we need to acknowledge that that's true. That is true. But at the same time, in Job's situation, he didn't do anything wrong to deserve this. Notice what he goes on to say then. He says in verse 4 through 6, he says, Does not he see my ways and number all my steps? If I have walked with falsehood, my foot has hastened to deceit. He says, Let me be weighed in a just balance and let God know my integrity. So the second, this second point is simply he's asking, here's his, here's his request, weighed in the balance, balances. He's asking for God to weigh him in the balance, prove his integrity. Now, there should be a picture of some scales. In your mind, what I want you to think when he's, t- he's asking to be weighed, essentially what he's asking for is, put me on the one side and then place all the things that I've done wrong, weigh them out, see which one's greater. He says, weigh me in that way. And not only to weigh him, he's asking specifically for him to number his steps. So numbering his steps, seeing my ways. So numbering his steps, seeing his ways. And Job is asking for God to look at his ways, to consider his life. As the psalmist would say, and we hear, you hear prayed often, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. I want to be clear and kind of circle up here for a minute. Job is not a legalist. Job is not just someone who's in, who, who just wants to stare at himself. That's not what he's doing here. And if you call yourself a Christian here today, I want to be very clear. It's not wrong for you to ask God to search you and know you in that way. 
For those who are saved by grace through faith, we should welcome, we more than anybody, should welcome God saying, asking God to search us and know us. We should invite Him to convict and reveal and make known our shortcomings. We can simultaneously affirm we are saved by grace and simultaneously say we're working out our salvation with fear and trembling. What Job is doing here is not legalism and it's not, hi- not hyper-spiritual. It's the call of the Christian. It's, he's, he's basically saying, this is, this is what's in me. Now Job turns, he's going to give a pattern here. I want you to see it in these next couple of verses. I want us to turn. Job's going to now examine his life. And he's going he's gonna to do it in this pattern. It should be there on your notes, but it should be up on the screen as well. It's, it starts in this pattern. He's going to say, and he does this for like 30 chapters, 30 verses. So we're not going to look at them all. We're going to look at three of them today. But he, this is his pattern. He says, sin, if I did blank, judgment, then I deserve this, reason, because of, fill in the blank, but here's my innocence except for this. That's what it, it, you just see this pattern over and over again. He does it like... I think it's like eight or nine times. I will not bore you with all eight or nine times. They're worthwhile to look at, but we're going to look at three of them. So what he's doing here is he's starting to list his faithfulness. He's listing faithfulness. So we've seen the integrity of heart. We've seen the integrity proved. Now he's asking, Lord, let me show you my integrity. Here's my integrity shown. Now, like I said, he does this for about 30 verses. I'm going to save you with all of them. Let me just recap a few of them. He says, if I turned aside, if I committed adultery, if I committed injustice, if I was ungenerous, and he says, if, 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 then I deserve destruction, but I haven't. So, therefore, you acquit me. That's what he's saying. That's essentially what he's saying. But I want us to look at three of them. Jump down to verse 9, 9 through 12. We'll just look at this one. Job 31, 9 through 12, he says, If my heart has been enticed by a woman, I have lain in wait, and I have lain in wait at my neighbor's door. Then let my wife grind for another. Let others bow down on her. For that would be a heinous crime. That would be an iniquity to be punished by the judges. For that would be a fire that consumes as far as a baton. And it would burn to the root of all my increase. So the first one is adulterous. And it's being allured by another. Now you see this pattern again. He says, if I've committed adultery, he's like, then I deserve that for myself. And not only that, I deserve to be punished justly. But his whole point is, I haven't. I haven't done this. Job acknowledges that he committed, if he committed adultery, God should punish him. And then if we think about this, this concept of adultery, and then to think about the words of Jesus in Matthew 28, just listen, to, or Matthew 5, 28, he says, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And Job's simple point here is simply, I'm pure from the inside. Now how? Okay, so I want us to see, we've talked about this before, but Job is both an example for us, and he's both prophetic. But here he's, he's being exemplary. And I think there's a warning here for us. There's, there's absolutely a warning for us here, 9 through 12. He says, if my heart has been enticed by a woman, and I have laid in wait at my neighbor's door. Basically, he's saying, if I committed adultery, and if you expand that to see what Jesus says, if anyone lusts after a woman, or any woman lusts after a man, 
it's adultery in your heart. The same warning needs to be said for both men and women. Let me say, let me say how it looks, though. It looks differently. So picture um, a husband and a wife at home with one another, talking to one another. And let's say they get into a fight, okay? So the husband leaves for work, because this would never happen, right? The husband leaves for work, and he goes to work, and in his anger, he thinks, well, I'm just going to flirt with this, this receptionist. He doesn't even need to know her name, and he can lust with her before her in that way. And we brothers, and brothers specifically, we need to guard ourselves from this. That means with, with our eyes, with our ears, everywhere we see, whatever we're taking in, we need to guard ourselves in this way. But for the woman, it looks different. So maybe that same fight happens, and rather than going to work, maybe she goes and talks to the neighbor. And the neighbor, he, he's, a, he's a friendly guy, right? And he knows her name, and he, he really listens to her, like no one else listens to her. Sisters, I want to warn you in this way. You're just as fearful, or just as, just as warning to be lustful, but in a different way. And oftentimes it looks far more pent up in the heart, longing after, oh, I just want to hear, maybe, maybe he'll go and listen to me. Maybe he'll listen to all my problems. Do you see? Like, it, it just looks a little different. If you have questions about that, please come talk to me. But I think lust for men and women looks different in that way. But let's listen to what Jesus goes on to say in verses 29 through 30. Here's Jesus' warning. This is what he says. He says, if your right, hand, your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one, your, one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And his whole point here is very, if, this, if you're sinning in some way lustfully, cut it off. Do whatever you need to do, cut it off. And he goes on and he says, and if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Throw it away. For it is better for you to lose that one member than your whole body to go into hell. And his whole point here, and I would just say this as well, if it's your smartphone, if it's your computer, if it's whatever it is, here's the words of Jesus, cut it off. Brothers and sisters, cut it off. And I want us to see, though, so, so Job is exemplary in that way. He's exemplary in adultery. He, he guarded his heart from this. He was not allured by another. And I want us to see that since we live in Death Valley, between the gardens, we need a faithful covenant keeper. And as we see from the Lord Jesus, there's none of us in this room that have kept the covenant. Every single one of us, I would argue every single one of us in some way or the other, have lusted in this way. So it's not just do better, it's not just try harder. So then the question is, well, how is Job not being pharisaical here? How is he not being just a Pharisee? Literally, his last plea to God is, look, I haven't lusted after a woman. That's his plea. How is he not being pharisaical? And it, seems, it, seem, it sure seems that Job's trying to flaunt his righteousness before God. Now, I want to say something about this. I think we use the word pharisaical far too often. Pharisaical, at its, at its core problem, is hypocrisy. It's, it's being a whitewashed tomb on the outside and being dre- dead and dying bones on the inside. As opposed to the Pharisees, though, we're seeing here from Job a kind of moral integrity which is grounded in faith. Because that's why he says, even, even in verse 1, I've made a covenant. So he's saying, I'm being faithful by what I've believed of you. So that's not moralism. That's not 
Pharisaism. And I'm not sure if Job would be able to articulate it, but it is a righteousness that is a result of faith. Okay? That's the big difference. It's a righteousness that is a result of faith, not saying, Lord, look how good I am. That's not what he's appealing to. And as Jesus says in, in, again, Matthew 5, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And Job is saying, this is what my hunger is. This is what my hunger is, and it's coming from within me. So that's the first one, adultery, allured by another. Here, let me give you the second one. It's envious, rejoicing in their ruin. Envious, rejoicing in their ruin. Jump down, uh, and we're jumping down pretty far for this one. Uh, Jump down to verse 29. Jump down to verse 29, and he says, If I have rejoiced at the ruin of him who hated me, or exalted when evil overtook me, him, sorry, or exalted when evil overtook him, I have not let my mouth sin by asking for his life with a curse. And Job's whole point here is he's saying, I have not been envious. I have not rejoiced to see my enemies. Yeah, you know those people who who just accused him for the last 30-something chapters? He's saying, I haven't wished ill on them. The people who beat me while I'm down, he's saying, I I actually prayed for them. (laughs) And you'll see at the end of this book, he actually prays for them, and the Lord restores them. He never looked on another and asked for them to be cursed. The logic here is very simple. It's if he did not if he did not ask for them to be cursed, it would make if he did. I'm sorry. If he did ask for them to be cursed, it would make sense for God to punish him. But he's saying I never acted that way. Now I want to clear something up at this point too, that I think again we we too often jump into or maybe pit in our minds. I'm afraid that we tend to believe too often that we are condemned by God's justice and saved by God's mercy. That we're condemned by God's justice, and we're saved by God's mercy. And I want to be very clear, we're not condemned by God's justice and saved by God's mercy. We cannot pit God's justice and God's mercy against one another. The saints of old did not make this contrast. They didn't contrast God's justice and mercy. They don't contrast His goodness and His truth. They don't contrast His favor and His faithfulness. What I want us to see even here in these verses of 29 to, 30, 29 to 30 is Job's not saying, well, look, I put good in, I'm getting good out. That's not what he's saying. He's just trying to prove I've been integrity. I have integrity. I'm not being punished for this. Rather than seeing him as, rather he's seeing him, what Job's saying here is he's seeing him as both gracious and righteous. Psalm 112.4, just listen to it in a couple other places. Light dawns in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious, merciful, and righteous. All three, exact same time. Psalm 116.5, gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. And the reality is, is since we live in Death Valley, that's where we dwell, brothers and sisters, between the gardens, we need a faithful covenant keeper, one who's both just and merciful at the same time. Okay, so that's his second. It was envious. Let me give you his third. His third is hiding. It's concealing transgression. Hiding. It's concealing transgression. You can stay right there in that same little section. Jump down to verse 33. 
He says, if I have concealed my transgressions as others do by hiding my iniquity in my heart, because I stood in great fear of the multitude, and the contempts of families terrified me so that I kept silence and did not go out of the doors. So it's hiding, it's concealing transgression here. If you notice, Job is alluding to Adam in the garden. I want you to read what, what we heard just even this morning. Adam in Genesis 3 It says, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And for Job, Job's saying this is high-handed rebellion. To hide yourself when transgression has occurred, is a great travesty. And since the Garden of Eden, all of us find ourselves in this position. Where our first parents hid themselves in their sin, humanity has plunged itself in the same direction. Let me give you an example of this. See, the other week, uh, I won't tell you who it was, there was a kid in town, in town, who was riding his four-wheeler out here in our parking lot. And I saw him before we left, and I saw him, and I was like, I just wanted to go ask him, like, please don't tear up the gravel and whatnot. And I drove away, and he saw me drive away, and I turned around, because I knew he was coming to do, do donuts in our parking lot. And as soon as he saw me, he, he just, like, hightailed it out of there. What's funny is I knew where he was going, because I saw where he came from. <laughs> so it's like, bro, come on. He's, like, he's only, like, 12. He's just a young kid. But it was funny, as I saw him going away, I thought to myself, this is the exact same thing, Daniel, you do in your sin. I knew I, he knew he was wrong. He knew he was wrong. He knew I wanted to talk to him. And rather than just talking to me, what he did was he ran and he hid. And what he showed me in that moment, and this is what I told him too, I said, man, what bothers me is you didn't just come talk to me. Because what it showed is you don't trust me. And every time, brothers and sisters, we find ourselves in a place that we hide in our sin, from God or from others, what we're doing is we're saying, I don't trust you and I don't trust you. Do you, do you see? That's a, that's a problem. And, and Job is saying, this is a great travesty. He's saying, I never did this though. I never hid myself in my transgression. As others have done, they hid themselves. I didn't. And if you go ask somebody, just go ask somebody, one of your friends, they'll tell you They'll do the exact same thing that my friend did, but they'll do it in a lesser way. They'll be like, well, I'm not as bad as Hitler, but I'm not as good as Mother Teresa. Like, I'm somewhere in between there. It's the same thing. It's, the, it's hiding, hiding in our sin. And I want us to get to this end of this Job listing off his integrity, and I want us to feel the weight of what Job is saying here. And it's assemb- essentially, we should, it should make all of us ask and wonder, then, who can be saved? If this is Job, if this is the integrity of Job, and he's literally saying, this is all that I've done, yet suffering still came, the question is, who can be saved? Whereas the psalmist would say, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Who could stand? So jump down to that next section, where Job's request is for God to weigh my cause. To weigh my cause. He's asking for a written charge. He says, weigh my cause. And he says in verse 35, 
Oh, that I had one to hear me. Here is my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. Oh, that I had the indictment written by my adversary. And he's simply asking, hear me. Lord, hear me. Give me an intercessor. Tell me where I'm wrong and I'll believe you. And Job's request is the same throughout this entire book. In his final plea, he reaches a fever pitch. Lord, hear me. Hear my request. Show me why I deserve this. And the answer is he didn't deserve it. He didn't deserve the suffering he was getting. And the question is, how could Job be asking for this? How can people who are sinners, how could Job ask this question to stand in the presence of God and ask for him to come and show him his his iniquity? And it's at this point that the book shifts a little bit. So we see the example of Job. Now we're going to see the prophetic nature of Job. Listen to it one more time, 35 and 36. He says, oh, that I had one to hear me. Here is my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. Oh, that I had the indictment or the, or the charge written by my adversary. Surely I would carry it on my shoulder. I would bind it on me as a crown. And Job is saying, God, if you see any indictment in me, any, any charge against me, just show me, and I'll literally place it on my shoulder. And I'll wear it around. Oh yeah, by the way, I'll form it into a crown and I'll wear it around on my head. He goes on. He doesn't just say that. Not only will he wear the indictment, he will also approach him like a prince. So approaching the prince. Approaching the prince. And this is actually approaching like the prince or approaching the prince in that way. Approaching the prince. Righteousness of another. Listen to what he says in verse 37. He says, I would give him an account of all my steps. Like a prince, I would approach him. Job is literally saying, God, if you show me where I'm wrong, I will just bear it. I understand why this is happening. But if I'm not wrong, I'm going to approach you and show you how I'm not wrong. We should be very clear. This is a very bold statement. Job is being very, very bold in this moment. He's saying that if his innocence would allow him to approach God like a prince, and he knows he's innocent in this, in this matter. The problem is, you and I aren't like Job in this way. You and I aren't innocent. Now, now I'm going to be very clear. Some of us in our suffering are innocent. Our suffering has come for no reason. We don't have a reason. God's going to give him a reason here in 42, in, chapter, in the next couple chapters. But we are not like Job in that way. We don't have a blameless record. Imagine with me. uh, Let me give you a schooling reference because school is much on my brain. Imagine you're taking a test for a class. And Job is essentially saying, well, like, I've I've passed my test. And he's saying, Lord, I'll show you how I've passed my test. But imagine you're in that same class. And you're getting ready to take the test. And you get the test. And it looks like it's in a different language. <laughs> you have no clue what this test is saying. And if you've ever taken a test that you failed in that way, you know the gut-wrenching, gut-dropping feeling of, I'm going to fail this test. I'm going to get an F if I'm lucky. I might write my name on it. But what Job is describing here is being able to walk up to the teacher with an A-plus paper. The problem is for me and you, we don't have an A-plus paper. The problem is for me and you, we have an F-minus paper. 
We didn't even get our name right. We misspelled that. But notice even what the psalmist says. In, in going back to Psalm 130, it's the same thing Job is saying here. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Me and you are the ones who have the F minus paper. And the beauty, the glory of the gospel is that as we're approaching the, the teacher for the grade, the Lord Jesus gives us his perfect A plus paper. If you have trusted in Christ, if you've turned from your sins and believed on Jesus, that, that salvation is in no other name, he takes your F minus paper and he gives you his A plus paper. We can come forward with confidence. And ultimately, I would argue, Job is able to come forward with confidence because he knows there needs to be the righteousness of another. We can come forward knowing that Jesus Christ has switched our papers. He has taken our F, and he has given us his A. Well, you say, well, that's really nice, Daniel. Where do you see that in Scripture? Let me give you one example. Romans 4. You can turn there, actually, because I'll, I'll look at it for a second. Romans 4. It was read this morning, but I'll read it again. Romans 4.4. 4. He says, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. Now verse 4 is the person who thinks, well, I have my F-, minus, but I think God will be gracious to me. And he goes forward anyway. He's saying, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but are his due. You know what's going to happen to the guy who goes forward with his F- minus paper? He's going to get an F-. minus. He's going to fail the test. But he says to the other one, now in comparison, verse 5, and to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So there it is. There's the, there's the flip-flop. He says, but to the one who does not work, but believes, he basically gets the other paper. He's given the A-plus paper. In verse, verse 6, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one whom counts, who God counts righteous apart from works. He says, and then quoting Psalm 32, he says, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. And this has a lot to do with even suffering. You may wonder, well, what is this, what is, what is justification by faith alone have to do with suffering? Well, it has this to do with suffering. If you're a Christian here today, if you've turned from your sins, you've trusted on Christ, no matter what comes your way, no matter what comes away, you can have assurance that God is never punishing you for your harm. He's never punishing you. You may not ever understand why certain things happen, but no matter what suffering you walk through, He is always working for your good and for His glory. And there's a deep confidence that you can have in that. Now, I want you to see this last section of the covenant confirmed. The covenant confirmed. It's creation speaks. In Job 38, just the end, that verse 38, if you jump back to Job, he says, If my land has cried out against me, and its furrows have wept together, if, it, if I have eaten its yield without payment and made its owners breathe their last, let thorns grow instead of wheat. Foul weeds instead of barley. The words of Job are ended. 
Now notice here, Job appeals, his final appeal is look at creation. God, look at creation. If, if I was really this wicked, I would not be this blessed. The creation would tell you. The creation would make it known. And again, it seems like Job is again just pointing to his own righteousness. Look, look what I've done, Lord. Look at all that I've done. Look at, look at the creations not cursing me, so therefore I must be righteous. And that's not what he's doing here. But what does it mean for Job to point to his own righteousness as an evidence for his integrity? Let me give you an instance for the Christian. Job's innocence that we see here in this, in this passage should never make us feel uncomfortable. It should never make us feel uncomfortable or awkward. For the Christian, this is your final appeal to God. The righteousness that Christ has given to you, his A plus for your F, that means that you can approach God with the same kind of confidence that Job is here. The same kind of confidence that you will be accounted or acquitted of all the wickedness that you've ever done. We make our final appeal to God not because we are righteous, but because He has made us righteous. Turn real quick to this last passage, Revelation 19. I want you to see just the picture of this going forward. Revelation 19. This, This passage... Is, is essentially after, or it's, it's, it's in the marriage supper of the Lamb. So basically the last supper that, that the Lord will, once He comes back, all those who were invited to the last supper, this is what, where we're picking up. Verse, verse 6 of chapter 19. So it's the marriage supper of the Lamb. He says, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. So that's, this is the final feast that we, if you're a Christian, you will, we will all be invited to. And his, his bride, that is the church, has made herself ready. It was granted to her, that is the church, to clothe herself with fine linen. Now notice, it was granted to her, not she just put it on of her own accord. It was granted to her, to clothe herself with fine linens, bright and pure. Now notice this. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Wait, what? That doesn't make any sense at all. So it was granted to her to have righteous deeds. <laughs> do, you, do you see that? So it was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, and then he comes down and he says, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. How is that even possible? I thought our deeds are our deeds. And it's the same thing with Job here. He's saying the righteous deeds are the righteous deeds wrought, brought about from faith. The righteous deeds are their own, on their own, are done by faith. The righteous deeds that come from faith, imputed from the righteousness of Christ. It's a gift that's given to her. But then, the gift is not by itself the gift. The gift is then exercised. As, as George Eldon Ladd says, he says, the saints who are summon, summoned to the Lamb's feast are those who have exercised steadfast endurance, who have kept the commandments of God and have persevered in their faith in Jesus. Or as Paul says in Second Thessalonians, to this end we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good in every work of faith by his power. I want you to notice this. He doesn't say, 
Oh, the Lord Jesus, he saved you. Now you just get to sit back and relax. No, no, no. Notice what he says. He says, we always pray for you that God may make you worthy of his calling. How? By fulfilling every resolve from good within you. So basically, it's like saying, he's given you his imputed righteousness to change you from the inside out. And then look, so that, verse 12, that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our, Lord, of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, what Job is calling for, what he's called for this entire book, is a faithful covenant keeper. He needs someone to come to suffer in his place unjustly, unrighteously, or unfairly. And in the same way, brothers and sisters, we need the faithful covenant keeper. So since we live in the garden between, since we live in the death valley between the gardens, we need a faithful covenant keeper. Now I want us to take communion. I want us to turn now to taking communion. And as we take communion, I think it's always been very confusing, uh, the kind of posture of taking communion. And I want you to hear, uh, just this is just one posture of heart. I want you to hear of what communion's not. Here's a couple that communion is not. Communion is not a funeral, a time to feel sorry for Jesus who died. Neither is it a mere remembrance of Jesus and his death. Furthermore, it is not, as presented above, a time for morbid introspection leading to feeling remorse of sin over personal sins. Okay, so three things here. It's not a funeral. We're not here at a funeral. This is a celebration. This is a foretaste of the heavenly marriage supper of the Lamb that we will one day partake with the Lord Jesus. So it's not a funeral. It's not just merely a remembrance. It is not a moment of just morbid introspection either. But he goes on and he says, it's a celebration. It's a celebration, a healing celebration of victory because Jesus, through his sacrificial death, has defeated sin and death and will return to establish the kingdom of God in its fullness. Then he goes on and says, we should also express a vibrant celebration of both past and future realities wrought by the Lord Jesus. So as you take this cup today, we don't do it with just, we don't do it as we're at a funeral. We don't do it with just morbid introspection, seeing how unworthy we are. This cup is a reminder that we are unworthy and yet, simultaneously, Christ is worthy. Okay, so I'm gonna, we're going to take communion now. Uh, if the deacons could come forward, we'll, we'll pass the elements.